Good morning, everyone. If you would join me as we go to the Lord, asking that his word would be honored and proclaimed. And, you know, it's whenever I have the privilege of proclaiming the words, I can't help but think of Ezekiel's prophecy out of chapter 37 when he's preaching to the valley of the dry bones. And I go, that seems so often to be my heart and probably all of our hearts. And I'm like, Holy Spirit, wake up uh, these valley of the dry bones. So let's go before the Lord. We ask, Father, that you would bless and honor and speed ahead and glorify yourself through your word this morning. That, Father, from wherever we are participating in this worship service, we may experience your delight and favor, that we may experience your love and the fact that uh, you are our refuge and we are your flock. And so, whether it's me as the messenger or those of us who are hearers, we pray for the Spirit to take the Word and apply it to our hearts and lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you have Bibles at home or following in the bulletins, however you want to do this, uh, when we do worship here, I ask for us to stand. So, at home or whatever, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word which is Psalm 34. As we continue for these weeks, we're going to, for a few weeks, we're going to look at what does it look like to cultivate intimacy with God. The psalmist who the title tells us is, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. I know I say this every week, and maybe you get tired of me saying it, but I need to repeat the truth to myself. We are certainly in a time these days when it is so easy to be anxious You know, it's funny, I even look at my own heart and my own mind, how it works. It's not like I'm taking a walk in the neighborhood and I go, yeah, I'm going to willfully, intentionally just go right into a flood of anxiety. 
You ever notice that? Thoughts can sometimes just hit you. It's kind of like you're going along and you're doing whatever it is you're doing and it's fine and all of a sudden here comes fear, here comes worry, here comes the uncertainty, here comes anxiety. We ask ourselves things like, will there be a resurgence of illness? What should we do? Well, what do we do about our anxiety? We can't control the uncertainty. I know we like to have the illusion, we like to have the dream, we're in control, but uh-uh, we're not. Uncertainty is a fact of life. So what do we do when we're feeling anxious, sorrowful, sad, weary, lonely, when the uncertainty is getting to us? You know, I'm not usually a fan of social media, although I have to admit I am grateful for Facebook that we've been able to do this these weeks and have been able to do this, but uh, one person uh, I like to read on social media from time to time is Scott Swain. Scott is the president of RTS Orlando, one of Rick Kokonis' professors. I told Rick this morning I'm giving, a, I'm giving Scott a shout-out as well. I don't know if it's his birthday or not, but this illustration, I was reading him this weekend, uh, he had some comments about what it looks like to encourage each other with biblical truth. He talked about, and I found this very helpful, and I don't know if I want to say comforting, comforting in the end, but challenging at first. He cites how we may typically exhort each other with true statements from Scripture. Do not fear, do not worry, do not be anxious, all of these things. But he talks about how we may unintentionally, inadvertently misapply them to our lives. And he says, this comes from a wrong way of looking at the heart, an unbiblical doctrine of man, an unbiblical way of looking at the heart. Dr. Swain says, and I quote, he says, the heart is sometimes viewed as a cup. So pretend I'm holding a cup here, and here's our heart. And we sometimes picture this cup as it's filled with all sorts of bad emotions, it's filled with our anxiety and our sorrow and our fear and our worry. And the way we apply or misapply, in Dr. Swain's words, uh, biblical truth, is that we need to pour out the bad emotions, empty the cup, and fill the cup with good emotions. Empty it of anxiety and empty it of fear and empty it of sadness and fill it with good emotions, joy, and all of that. And Dr. Swain rightly instructs us that this is, first of all, a failure to realize, first from a redemptive historical perspective, that these are days of sorrow. You know, if you think of Revelation 21 and the amazing hope of what the new world will look like, the amazing end of history, Jesus himself says, he, or John is saying of Jesus, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know what that means right now? There are still tears in our eyes. We're going to be, sometimes lament and sadness over things is not only what we feel, it's the right emotion. And so the heart, he says, is not a cup. He says, rather, picture it this way, more as a balance scale that can tip either way. And he says, we should look at and believe and embrace truth more as a counterweight. So if here's our emotions going this way, 
You put the truth of Scripture on the scale of your heart to counterweigh it this way. So in other words, yes, you speak to your heart. You speak powerfully to your heart. Gospel realities, biblical truths like God's sovereign purposes, his goodness, his love, his beauty, and his faithfulness. But you do so not as a way of just kind of trying to fill the cup, but as a counterbalance, balancing the scale of our fear and anxiety. And thus, in that way, it is what we're calling the antidote to anxiety. It's not that we go poof, and magically, all the bad emotions disappear, doesn't even remove the uncertainty. But cultivating a thankfulness, cultivating gratitude is a way to cultivate intimacy with God. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 34, which if in the genres of psalms is classified as a thanksgiving psalm. The psalmist refers to himself in verse 6 as this poor man. The psalmist who is David is looking at himself. And what does it mean to be a poor man? He has no resources. He's helpless. He's bankrupt. And he says, this poor man. And he's a man who was rescued by God from some trouble and is now grateful to God for his rescue, for his deliverance. And so he's praising God and he's encouraging the community to join him in that praise. So the opening verses of the psalm jubilantly Proclaim, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Even though we're only virtual. Do you know that's what we're doing right now? You may be at your kitchen table, at your dining room table, on your family room sofa. The eight of us here in the sanctuary, we are exalting the name of the Lord together, and it is wonderful. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all his fears. He is given a counterweight, balancing the scales of his heart with excitement. He is grateful for the Lord's answering his prayer, delivering him from his trouble. And he just has to share it with his fellow worshipers. Reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said in his reflections on the Psalms. C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment The expression of the praise, the thanksgiving, is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Lewis writes, it is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are, in a sense, the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. When you're expressing the enjoyment, you are exalting God and you are magnifying him. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? That expressing the praise completes the praise. I don't know about any of you all, 
But on Thursday night, I was thrilled to have one teeny bit of sports back. The NFL draft. And of course, Shane's going, yes, he's thrilled they got Jalen Hurts out of Oklahoma. I love our number four pick for the Giants, Andrew Thomas, the offensive tackle. If only we could have had a line to protect Eli the last years of his career. But do you notice what I'm doing? Expressing our joy, expressing our praise, is actually the consummation of the praise. The praise is not complete until it's expressed. That's the good part of things like Facebook and stuff like that, where we get to have a joy, something one, rather than arguing with each other, we get to have a joy and we express it, we complete it. We ought to be rejoicing with Shane and Joel at their new home. It completes the praise. We are exalting the name of the Lord together as a community. I know you all may not have enjoyed the NFL draft. I loved it. Had to text my son. Had to text people and going, who is your team going to pick? What's going on? Now, how does this psalm teach us to cultivate this kind of thankfulness and this kind of gratitude? David in this psalm uses two themes to teach us how to cultivate this as a counterweight, as a balance. Friends, don't have expectations that you'll never be anxious again. You'll never be uncertain again. You'll never worry again. But the antidote, what balances the scales, will always be the realities and the truth of God's word. And the two themes that we glean from this text are gratitude and humility and gratitude and the fear of the Lord. Look with me at verse 2 when he says, let the humble hear and be glad. And in verse 6, when David identifies himself as this poor man, he's saying this humble man, this humble man cried and the Lord heard him. And verse 18, when he says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, there'll be no intimacy with God and there'll be no intimacy or community with others if you are full of yourself. If as Rick read in our confession passage this morning, you're flattering yourself in your own eyes. If you're just filled with your own self-importance, if you're narcissistically focused inward upon yourself, there will be a barrier between yourself and God and yourself and other people. Now, what is the historical situation behind writing, the writing of this psalm? The, psalm? the title of the psalm says it was written by David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Now, what is he talking about there? He's going back to a story that is recounted for us in 1 Samuel 21. The story of when David was in the Philistine city of Gath, and the king, who was named Achish, and most commentators think that this is the Abimelech that's here in Psalm 34. And what was David doing? David goes to this city because he's on the run. He's seeking political refuge from Saul. Saul's after him. And he found himself in a dangerous situation, though, because the king's officials were worried about David's military prowess and were probably concerned that David might be planning an attack against the city. Now, David, I won't go through. I'm not preaching on 1 Samuel 21 this morning, so I won't go through that. David eventually got out of that situation. How? By pretending to be insane and thus being sent away. Now, the connection between that historical account and this psalm is that the psalmist finds himself in trouble, under afflictions, calls on God, God answers his prayer, rescues the psalmist, for which David is grateful. 
The psalm teaches us that gratitude and the fear of the Lord drive out. They're a counterweight. They balance the scales of other fears. John puts it in his first letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out or expels or casts out fear. See, a heart of gratitude and humility is cultivated by a basic orientation, a focus on the glory of God. If you look at the opening verses of this psalm, they all have their focus completely on God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast, its obsession in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. See, what exactly is humility? Humility is one of those difficult things to quantify or define. It's difficult because it's not something that can easily be measured. The best definition of humility I've ever read is again one from C.S. Lewis where he says if we, were to tr- if we were to meet a truly humble person we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a very self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how, they, how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more highly of yourself, nor thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Tim Keller wrote a book on it called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? Genuine humility is self-forgetfulness. It's an unself-consciousness. Now, granted, that's the goal that's here, and I know where I am. I'm, I don't know if you're seeing this on the camera. <laughs> I'm way down here. And we'll never arrive, but it's a sense where you're so boasting in, obsessed with the personality, the orientation, the glory of God, that you're obsessed with his creatures. You're in love with the beauty of the world. You're focused and totally, you're not thinking more highly of yourself. You're not thinking less of yourself. You're thinking of yourself less. It's that unself consciousness. You are so absorbed, so obsessed with God that you're not even thinking as much about yourself. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, in his book on discipleship, said this about holiness. He said, becoming holy is being so taken over by the extraordinariness of God that that is what you are really interested in. And that is what radiates from you to reflect on other people. He says, there's the catch. If you want to be holy, stop thinking about it. If you want to be holy, look at God who is holy. If you want to be holy, enjoy God's world. Enter into it as much as you can in love and in service. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Oh, that we would be overcome with the extraordinariness of God as a counterweight to balance the scales of our fear and anxiety and cultivate thankfulness and intimacy with God that way. Next, look with me at gratitude and the fear of the Lord. And verse 8 picks up, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. 
The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Do you notice in those four verses how many times that fear of the Lord is mentioned? Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Now, we have to be careful there. That is not talking about prosperity gospel teaching. But it is teaching us the reality that we live and we move and we have our being, that we are dependent every moment for every breath we take on the Trinitarian God. God the Father through the mediator, Jesus Christ, in the power and agency of the Holy Spirit. And have no lack does not mean that our circumstances will always go perfect. That is simply not the teaching of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, the psalm does says, say, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But have no lack does mean that if we are cultivating communion with God, cultivating relationship, personal relationship with God, Jesus said this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That communion with God will always satisfy. That what we need most is the Lord's grace and favor. I think it's fascinating how this psalm plays such a significant role in Peter's first letter. That this verse, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord of good stands behind. I think Peter's alluding to it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. When he's speaking of the word of God and he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. And then he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know what Peter's mind is obsessed with? I mean, he didn't just come out of that, come up with that out of the blue. He's alluding to Psalm 34, 8, if indeed... You've tasted that the Lord is good, that through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, you've tasted the ultimate goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the fullness of salvation. That what verse 22 says, that none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What a promise that is. Preach that, friends, to your soul. One commentator put it, The description of the righteous in the psalm is seen as a fitting description of how the Christian should live. That the fear of the Lord does produce fruit. Peter uses the psalm to encourage, to motivate. He's balancing the scales. Motivating his hearers toward a kingdom mindset and lifestyle. So here's the $64,000 question. I don't want to exhort you with just saying, do this. That's a terrible sermon. And there's no way I will do this. How do we cultivate this? Friends, I hope you hear me say this. I hope you hear me say it loud and clear. I hope you will forever hear me say it. It is only through the gospel. Psalm 130, one of my most favorite psalms. The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should... Mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Don't stop there. That you are feared. In other words, the only way to cultivate the fear of the Lord is with the reality that you stand forgiven under grace. 
that God the Father, through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ in the governing power and agency of the Holy Spirit, genuinely likes you. With God there is forgiveness, and it's only that that is going to propel an obsession, a boast in the extraordinariness of God. As extraordinary as creation is, as beautiful as the world is, as extraordinary as God is in his holiness and his attributes and his character, there is nothing more extraordinary than the fact that he genuinely forgives us, that he wipes away all our sins, he remembers our sins no more through the blood of the cross. Now look again at how David presses this home. Verse 7 says, and to me this is a very intriguing statement. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now it's easy to read this psalm and kind of go, what in the world does that mean? We're kind of getting spooky and at the angel of the Lord. Okay, can we go back to Psalm 130? That's easier to understand. But no, we're not going to skip over more intriguing, difficult passages and texts. We need to recognize, and commentators tell us, that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament can quite often stand for the Lord himself, a pre-incarnate Christ. Exodus chapter 3, it was an angel of the Lord that met Moses in the burning bush. The fact that he encamps around those who fear him points to God as the ultimate divine warrior. That's the visual, that's the picture that David is portraying. That the angel of the Lord, this pre-incarnate Christ that is guarding, that is encamping around the saint, the worshiper of God, actually is the divine warrior of God who fights on behalf of his people. See, I want you to look at this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Who's the ultimate righteous? Isn't it Jesus? So who's the ultimate righteous sufferer? Isn't it Jesus? And think about why Jesus suffers. In his humiliation, in his incarnate life, to his death on the cross, to his ultimate vindication in the resurrection. Why does he suffer? He suffers in order to fight, to be the divine warrior, fighting for justice for his people. In order to be our divine warrior, fighting our battle against shame, against sin, against the flesh, against hell, against fear, against death, and he defeated them through the cross. I cannot help but think that as David is writing this psalm, and he's thinking about the angel of the Lord encamping around those who fear him, he has in mind another story from Israel's history about a dangerous encounter. In Joshua chapter 5, we read the following. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him, I want you to note this detail, with a drawn sword in his hand. Very important detail. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? That's a logical, good question. And he said, no. Immediately I'd be thinking, excuse me, that's a very cryptic answer. (laughs) Can I get, are you for us or for our adversaries? No. 
But he answers, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And at that point, Joshua fell on, the face to the, on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place we are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, notice that who, whom Joshua is meeting. He is meeting the commander of the Lord's army. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus. The words, I am commander of the army of the Lord. This is no ordinary person. And then Joshua says and asks him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no, but he says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And he has a drawn sword. What does a drawn sword indicate? It means he is ready for battle. The Lord has a drawn sword. Now, if you think about this, what would that do to Joshua? He falls on his face in fear. He's terrified. Because he realizes that before the Lord, no one can face the sword of the Lord. Don't you remember in the book of Genesis when the Lord expelled Adam and Eve out of the garden, he banished them from the garden, that after he drew, after he drove them out, what did he do? He placed on the east side of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword preventing their entrance. If they try to enter back into the garden, enter into the Holy of Holies, enter into the sanctuary of the Lord, they will perish for the wages of sin is death. Anybody who tries to get into the garden, to try to get into the intimacy of the presence of the holy, anybody who tries to get back into the bliss will have to face the sword. Sinful people cannot relate to a holy God. So why didn't the sword come down on Joshua? See, it's very interesting that right before Jericho, in the passage right before the one I read for you out of the book of Joshua, they celebrated the Passover. Now, why would they do that? Because what happens at the Passover? It's the lamb that goes under the sword. And the blood of the lamb, as a substitute, goes on the doorposts. They take shelter. They take refuge. Where? Under the blood of the lamb. What does it all represent? The commander of the army of the Lord comes with a drawn sword and you can meet him. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Lord. Jesus is the one who takes the sword himself. Because there will be a day when he comes in weakness, not in strength, taking the sword himself so that the sword is now for you. The Lord is the divine warrior who has fought for you and not against you. Friends, the only way for you to cultivate intimacy with him is to take refuge in him under the blood. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. That's what verse 22 says. 
see and learn to speak and convert your imagination to be able to see the angel of the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and camped around you. Give yourself to him in your fear, in your worry, in your anxiety. It won't magically go away, but battle it, confront it with the angel of the Lord encamping around you. Let's pray. Father, what words are there to say to praise you and to thank you that the sword came down on the Lamb, that it passed over us and it came down upon Jesus, that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, took away our sins because the penalty, the justice of God, fell upon him. You are a beautiful and a holy and a just God. And your grace is not that you swept our sins under the rug, but no, it's that the justice of God fell upon Jesus. Help us to understand that, to nurture that into our souls, to cultivate that. Lord, not as a kind of a magical elixir to our anxiety, but as something that we're confronting our uncertainty and our anxiety and our fears with. No one who takes refuge in Jesus will ever be condemned. We pray in his name, for his sake. Amen.